All right, this morning we are going to take a look at the deacon qualifications for our, our time in reviewing the disciplines. And uh, one of the things that's really important for us to do here is to make sure that we keep in view deacon qualifications throughout, throughout our time in build. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3? We're going to look at verses 8 through 13 together. And what we're going to do here is we are going to see how the care for our own heart is essential in a man becoming qualified to serve as a deacon at this church or at any church. Uh, deacon qualification and deacon service are very, very important because deacon service is kind of a layer that sits between the church leadership at an elder level and the congregation as a whole. And it's really important that these men serve in, in various capacities. Most churches don't have a sufficient number of leaders and pastors and elders to meet all of the needs of the church. So we employ in God's wisdom and God's design deacons to, to provide a layer of service that, that is sort of a layer between the leadership and the body. And God has qualifications for these men. And what I want to do is walk through those qualifications and show how the, the heart shepherding and heart care is so closely tied to an effective, well-qualified deacon. I'm going to read this passage, and then we'll make some observations of it. First of all, we want to read, starting in verse 8, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity. Paul has just gotten done explaining the qualifications for an elder. Now he's talking about qualifications for deacons. They must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are above reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of words there, and that's because there is a lot that goes into being a deacon and serving as a deacon and being qualified to serve as one. I want to start in the middle of the passage, take your attention to verse 10. Paul says, these men first must also be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. Look at the beginning of the verse and look at the end of the verse. These are men who must be tested, and then they can serve if they're beyond reproach. We're going to focus on the first part and the second part briefly here. Uh, testing here is a method to determine whether something is counterfeit or not. And so a man must first be tested. He is, this is something that a deacon does. Um, he proves himself worthy of being deacon qualified before he serves as a deacon. And so it's really important to understand that the deacon is not a man who, who becomes qualified on the job. He, he actually demonstrates himself to be qualified before he serves as a deacon. Um, the other thing that's very important about this is that the deacon is a man who is beyond reproach. And this is kind of a, a summary character of the qualification of the man. And that is that there's, there's no charge that can be made against the man that will stick to him. There's no pattern of life that he is, is involved in that would be a discredit to the gospel. And that's the kind of man that he is. But what I want to do is, is show how heart shepherding relates to a man who is well tested and a man who's beyond reproach. Um, how does a man measure well? How does he be evaluated well when he's tested? Well, that's because he shepherds his own heart and then he takes the fruit of that heart shepherding into his home and so that he is ready to serve well when he steps into this church. Um, he's ready at a heart level for whatever testing and whatever involvement with others he might find himself in. 
Uh, it's because he's reading his Bible. It's because he's spending time alone with God in prayer. It's because he's meditating on scripture that when he steps into involvement with the church, he's ready to do it well. He might actually have a, a challenging relationship with a good friend, with a good brother, a brother who needs to hear and be admonished and exhorted with truth. And because he's reading his Bible and because he's meeting with the Lord at a heart level, he's ready to do that well. Uh, he's ready to give compassionate care to maybe to a young believer who is just learning what it looks like to walk in fellowship with other believers. He's ready to do that because he, he's cared for his own heart well and he remembers well what it was like when he was in that same position himself. How does heart shepherding relate to being above reproach? Well, it's obvious. It's the same thing. It's caring for your own heart and then caring for your own home and caring for your own ministry. One thing that's really interesting about considering whether you're above reproach or not is um, that a lot of time the evaluation for whether a man is, is above reproach or not occurs while nobody is really observing the man. Nobody's really looking at the man. It's a measure of what you really look like when you're involved in your private life how you live in your home, how you live amongst your, your co-workers at work, how you live amongst your neighbors and how you're involved with them, and what everybody's observation of you would be. And the only way that a man can be well represented in that and he can do well in those things and find himself to be well proven is if he is already caring for his heart because it is going to be out of the overflow of his heart that his mouth will speak. So when he's caring well for his heart, he's gonna be one who represents Christ well in his neighborhood, in his home, in his workplace, and things like that. So the, the heart shepherding is, is very, very important as it relates to the overall testing and the overall above reproachness of a man who is a deacon at a church. I want to walk through just a, all, each one of the qualifications and say a, a word about what each one of them is and how it is that heart shepherding really does um, feed well into and is a requirement for, and it's the underlying foundation for each one of these qualifications. So the first qualification that Paul has in verse 8 is that the deacon is, is a man who is a man of dignity. And when we think of a man who's dignified, sometimes you think of this old-fashioned guy and he's wearing really nice clothes and, and he, he doesn't speak wrong and his hair looks really good and he's shaved and everything. But that's not what all of Paul is getting at here. Um, a dignified man is a man who has a serious bearing in life. And uh, he has a serious bearing because he fears the Lord. And he fears the Lord because he's spending time alone with God, pouring over God's revelation of himself in Scripture. Has a serious bearing in life because he's praying with the Lord about his own sin. He's confessing it to the Lord. And he's worshiping the Lord because of God's goodness and God's grace. And all of this has the result of, of producing a man who's really winsome to be around, really enjoyable to be around. So heart shepherding is, is imperative when you think about being a man of dignity. Paul also talks about how a deacon must be a man who's not double-tongued. And to be double-tongued is, is to have two messages. You have one message for this audience over here, maybe the congregation, and you have another message for this audience over here, maybe the elders and the pastors at your church. And a deacon cannot be that man. He, he must be a man who only has one message. A man who has two messages, uh, has two messages because he's more concerned with pleasing man than he is concerned with pleasing God. And this is where heart shepherding comes into the, the equation so significantly for being a, a deacon. Uh, when a man spends time alone with God in his word, when a man spends time praying, he learns to fear God because he is seeing God's revelation of himself. 
And so he is comfortable with God. He is confident in the rightness and the goodness of God's ways. So regardless of what audience he is in front of, whether it's the congregation at large in the church or whether he's involved with the, the leadership of the church, he has the same message. The reason why he has the same message is because he's, he's convinced of the rightness and the goodness of God's word and how it applies to individual situations. So heart shepherding is really, really important in being a man who is not double-tongued. He's also a man who's not addicted to much wine. And the guy who's addicted to much wine is, is the guy who, who constantly has alcohol nearby. He constantly has some substance nearby where he finds his rest, he finds his pleasure, he finds his joy. Um, the man who is meeting alone with the Lord in prayer, the man who is meeting alone with the Lord over his word and is actually worshiping the Lord, and God's revelation of himself. He finds his greatest joy. He finds his greatest peace. He finds his greatest desire. He finds his greatest confidence in being with the Lord. He doesn't find it in another substance. And so um, that's why a man who is, is um, well qualified to be a deacon is a man who shepherds his own heart well because he finds his greatest joy and his greatest peace in his relationship with the Lord, not with other things. And so that's really important as well, too. And all of this just con continues to show how important it is for us every day to um, be men who meet alone with the Lord and who care for our hearts. He's a man who is, is not fond of sordid gain. He's not fond of coming across gain in a way that's dishonest or disingenuous. Um, so how does a man keep himself from believing a lie that his greatest benefit is in monetary gain? It's, it's when he spent time alone with God. And he understands where the real treasure in life is to be found. His real treasure in life is to be found with knowing the Lord and remembering that uh, he has his mind fixed on the things above. When he meets alone with the Lord, he reads God's word that tells him that he's a, his citizenship is in heaven. And so he's, he's well-versed in who he is in, in terms of his identity with Christ and in terms of his identity as a child of God. And so he doesn't believe the lie, and he doesn't fall into the, the trap of believing that some kind of financial gain that, that comes about in ways that are dishonest is, is an advantage to him. So it's really, really important that a man who serves as a deacon be, be one who is caring well for his heart. Some deacon roles involve the handling of a substantial amount of money. Uh, there's guys who purchase things, there's guys who prepare things, and some of those deacon roles involve the exchange of a lot of money. And so the man who is well shepherded in his heart about what his true treasure is in life is not going to feel the draw to advance himself and benefit himself in some way. So deacon qualifications are, are really, really important as it relates to shepherding your own heart. Then we see that a man who is a deacon is a man who holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so there's something really important that we understand here, and that's that Paul is talking about the present tense here. He's writing to Timothy and he's saying, a man who is a deacon is a man who presently does hold to the faith with a clear conscience. And it's the mystery of the faith. It's something that was unknown at the time before Paul was writing, but it's now been revealed. It's something that's very clear. And that is the gospel itself, the content of what a person must believe in order to be saved. And he does this with a clear conscience. He, he actually lives his life in such a way that the testimony of his life does not give him any opportunity to convict himself over the kind of man that he truly is. And the only way that a man can actually be that way is to be reading God's word and the rightness of goodness of actually living that way, spending time alone with the Lord. And then we have a, a Paul's qualification after he addresses the issue of women. 
he addresses that a, a deacon must be a man who is the husband of only one wife. And this, I, I think we understand Matt did a really good job of helping us understand last time that, that this is speaking of a guy who is a one-woman man, that when he thinks about satisfaction, he thinks about his affections, he thinks about his joys, he thinks about his desires, he is thinking of one and only one person. If he's married, that's the person that he's married to, that, that's the object of his affections. If he's a single man, he's a man who is committed to reserving the expression of all of those things to the person that God will bring to him later in his life. So how does a man, a man grow to hold those unique affections and those exclusive affections? He does so by reading God's word again and again and again, reading God's design for what it looks like to be faithful in your marriage, what it looks like to be faithful as a single man. The only way that you can have a clear understanding in this world that we live in of what it must be like and what a man must do to be pleasing to the Lord in that way is to be reading your Bible and to be shepherding your heart with that and counseling yourself day after day after day. The rightness and the goodness of God's design for pleasure, God's design for fulfillment, God's design for intimacy. And lastly, he must be a good manager of his children and he must be a good manager of his household. How does a man become one who is a good manager of his home? Again, he becomes a good manager of his home when he's first and foremost caring for his own heart by meeting with the Lord in his Bible reading, in his prayer, in his meditation, so that when he needs to discipline his kids, and there might be a guy in this room who's already had to do that already this morning, um, he is ready to do that well. He's ready to do it in a way that is winsome, a way that is compassionate, a way that is clear, a way that is firm, a way that is not inconvenienced or offended. He can only do that if he's been reminded daily on an ongoing basis of God's kindness and God's goodness and God's grace to him when God saved him. He must be a good manager of his household. He knows from his Bible reading that in Psalm 24 that everything belongs to the Lord. I think we're going to hear that from Dave today, that um, the earth and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. So he has a biblical perspective on what actually these things are that are in his home, his car, his furniture, his clothing, and all of his stuff. And he treats it as a steward, not as an owner of all of those things. And he doesn't get there on his own. He gets there by God's word telling him that. He must be reading his word. So what we see in God's word is that the deacon qualifications are, are pretty extensive. They're pretty substantial. They're, they're qualifications where a man never actually says, I've got it, I've got a lock on this, and I don't need to grow anymore. He will always be growing. I encourage each and every one of you men, as you're spending time alone with the Lord in prayer, as you're spending time alone with the Lord, uh, with your Bible open, meditating on the scriptures that you're reading, know that what you're doing is you're preparing yourself for service in this church in one way or another. Uh, for those of you who are, are already deacons, I just praise God for your service and your kindness and your goodness to this church. Um, but keep striving, all of us, towards the qualifications that God has put in front of us so that this church can be a church that is, is well-equipped to bring the gospel to those here who don't already know it. All right, it's kind of intimidating up here. Um, and, you know, I feel for you know anybody that's doing build and doing it up here. thing that I noticed real quick was when I went back into, when I went back into my notes to get prepared for this, I'm sitting there, oh my goodness, I need to start doing that, or I shouldn't be doing that. And I, you know, it just started me all over again, kind of reassessing myself and looking at, you know, what, you know, what ends up, I end up talking about up here. So, 
Not anybody's perfect. We all sin. We all have to continually work on that. And so that's the reason why we have built. So um, we're going to be spending a lot of time reading some scripture verses. And there'll be a couple of places where I, you know, have a couple guys pull up and look up the scripture verses. But generally, I'm just going to read a lot, quite a bit of it. So I, I'm just, you know, going to be spending a lot of time bringing up scripture. And then, you know, if there's any questions that you guys have or anything that comes up, uh, feel free to interrupt. Um, I know that I guess in a couple of weeks we may try to move over to the other room because we need to use the board because we're going to be involved in taking a, a deep dive into ways in order to be able to manage your funds so and your resources. So, so let's get started. Uh, and you guys have the handout. Um, there's places there to make notes and fill in blanks and so on and so forth. But it pretty much follows what you know I'm going to be going over. So just a reminder, this class, is, it will not tell you how to achieve your financial goals. Now what it's for, it will provide you answers on how to formulate your financial goals. We're not going to talk about securities, uh, but security. We're not going to talk about insurance, but assurance. And we're not going to talk about principal, but principles. So we're not going to do a net worth calculation, but we will see how God measures your life's worth. Today, we are not going to talk about investments, taxes, cash flow, insurance. We must first take a close look at what God has to say about money and his children. Martin Luther once said, there are three conversations necessary in a Christian's life. The conversation of the heart, which is what you guys are doing. The mind, which you're also doing. And the purse. So 16 of 28 parables in the Bible are about money or possessions. He uses them as examples. It says the Bible has 500 verses on prayer, but 2,350 verses on money and possessions. Psalms 1.1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And that's my urging, is that we all have a hard time talking about our money. How many of you guys have sought godly counsel pertaining to your finances? It's very difficult to do that. And so we always go to financial planners. We go to financial people who aren't Christians. And they don't understand where we stand and what I'm going to go through today. So... I urge you that if you need counsel, seek out an elder. Seek out somebody that can help you with, with this, that's, that, that has the same mindset that you have. Now, our pri the primary thing that we're going to go over today has to do with this one sentence. And I'm going to repeat it many times throughout today's lesson. It says, all we are and all we have we received from God. Consequently, we and all of our possessions belong to him. That's what we're going to cover today. Now, the outline is set up so that the first item is that he is master, the second is stewardship, and how should we give. Those are the three things we're going to go over today. In two weeks, we're going to go over the remaining three. 
And that's, that's where we're going to end up kind of in a little workshop we're going to discuss and talk about oh, quite a bit of this. So let's start with He is Master. How you view God determines how you live. One of 250 names God calls himself as Master. Psalms 136.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and earth. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7, that men may know from the rising of the setting of the sun and that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light, creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 and 12, everything in the heavens and the earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as being in control of everything. Riches and honor come from you alone, and you are the ruler of all mankind. Your hand controls power and might, and it is your discretion that men are made great and given strength. The name that best describes God's part in our stewardship, and remember that word, stewardship, of his assets is master. Do you accept God in that role. Let's look at what the Bible says about how God is our master in the area of our money and possessions. Ownership. Psalms 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Haggai 2, 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Psalms 50.10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on thousand hills. We must, in our minds, transfer our ownership to the Lord. When we acknowledge God's ownership, every spending decision becomes a spiritual decision. No longer do we ask the Lord, what do you want me to do with my money? The question is restated. Lord, what do you want me to do with your money? When we have this perspective, spending and saving decisions are equally as spiritual as giving decisions. Consequently, we and all of our possessions belong to him. That's the mindset that we need to start off with when we start taking a look at this, this subject. So the question is, is, do you acknowledge that God owns everything? If he is master, do we act like a slave? So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created us. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefather, but with precious blood as of, the, as of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we belong to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20, we have been bought with a price. So he owns us in two ways. He created us and he redeemed us. So we are slaves to Christ, and a slave has no legal rights. We belong entirely to the master who has complete control. 
Slaves cannot own anything. Romans 6.16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? It's, it's one, or, one way or the other. So we are slaves to obedience. Again, all we are and all we have we received from God. Consequently, we and all of our possessions belong to him. Remember that phrase. So let's talk about contentment for a minute. To learn to be content, you must recognize God as the owner of your possessions. That's the first step. If you believe you own even a single possession, then the circumstances affecting that possession will be reflected in your attitude. So, how many of you guys know what it feels like after you buy a new car? You probably wash it every day. You make sure that the gauges all give you the right readings and so on and so forth. So, it's kind of exciting. So, how do you feel when your car, your new car, is dented two days later? That all changes, doesn't it? So can you say, well, God, I don't know why you want a dent in the side of your new car, but you certainly have a big one. If something favorable happens to that possession, then you're happy. If something bad occurs, you'll be discontent. It is far too easy, listen to this, this is really important, it's far too easy to think that possessions, the possessions we have and the money we earn are entirely the result of skills, of our skills and achievements. We must understand and believe that we have not earned the right to their ownership. We constantly need to be reminded that God owns all of our possessions. He also owns us. Psalms 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is de declaring the work of his hands. Exodus 19.5, for all the earth is mine. So what happens when you don't acknowledge that God is the owner of all we have? Think about it a second. What happens? What, what happens in your mind? What happens in your life? and in your decisions. There's four things I've got written down here. Pride. We earned it. We take pride in what, is, what has been given to us. Stewardship suffers. And we're going to talk about stewardship in a great deal in a few minutes. We begin going into debt. We're not generous. We'll talk about that too about giving. We feel we have rights before God. Those are some of the consequences of not acknowledging as Christians that you belong to God and your possessions belong to Him. Now, He does provide for us in the area of provision. Yeah, pride, stewardship suffers, not generous. We feel we have rights before God. Provision. 
he will provide us with our needs. So if you take a look at it, he has not promised to provide our wants. Big difference there. Big difference there. He promises to provide our needs and tells us to be content when these needs are met. Philippians 4.19 And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in the glory of Jesus of Christ Jesus. So contentment. 1 Timothy 6.8 And if we have food and covering with these we will be content. This is another measure of having turned over ownership. Is that contentment. What is the difference between a need and a want? Let's be honest. We almost all have what we need. We don't have what we want and desire. We say the wrong thing. I need a new car. That's not correct. It should be I desire or I want a new car. 1 Timothy 6 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. A need is a basic necessity of life food, clothing, and shelter. God's part in helping us reach contentment is that he has obligated himself to provide our needs. He has not promised to provide our wants. Philippians 4.19 And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in the glory of Christ Jesus. Be content when God does not grant your wants. But be very grateful, very grateful, and give thanks when he does grant your wants. Remember that you are only a custodian of, the, of his assets. All we are and all we have we receive from God. Consequently, we and all of our possessions belong to him. I keep repeating that because I'm trying to drive it in your head like I had to do it in mine. Say, what's discontent? It is not discontent to want a new car or a new washing machine. The problem is to be discontented with the old car or washing machine when you cannot afford a new one. A good measure of one's discontent or dissatisfaction is consumer debt. People buy things they don't need with money they don't have. Discontent is the beginning of covetousness. Desiring more than one needs, desiring what another possesses, and being greedy. So, I've got a list on your outline, I think, of scripture verses that God really is the owner of all. What I want to do is I want to, I want to read through these real quick. There's four of them there. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Leviticus 25, 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourns with me. Job 41.11, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's hard to read scripture and to not see that God's in total control. And he owns us and he owns what we, what we own, or what we are, are in possession of. 
Okay, the next area that we need to talk about is stewardship. Because if he's the master, then we're the slave. So what's our responsibility? Unless we understand his absolute ownership and see our relationship to him as our owner, we cannot approach the subject of stewardship in a meaningful way. Yes, man is a creature and a dependent being. It follows that he is a steward, not an owner. 1 Corinthians 29:14. All things come from you. Listen to this last part of this verse. From your hand we have given you. So this is a prayer of thanks that God gives all the credit, that God has given all the credit, even for the people's generosity. So it comes from him when you give. So what's a steward? The Greek word, whoops, wrap, okay. The Greek word used for stewardship means economy. So this means it is someone who ha manages someone else's household. So the definition from the uh, dictionary says careful management of wealth, resources, avoidance of, what, of waste by careful planning and use, thrift and thrifty use. So is that how you manage your household? I know sometimes I don't. <laughs> so, a steward is a trustee or an agent for the benefit of the owner. So does your money and possessions belong to you? Do, you, do your kids, if you have kids, belong to you? A steward must be faithful, honest, have integrity, and be loyal. The steward must lay aside self-interest and think only of the welfare of the one whose property he is handling. So you're a steward. It's your responsibility to take care of what's been given to you. In order to attain that level of stewardship that requires complete surrender. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Have you yielded your whole self to the Lord Jesus Christ? 1 John 4.19, We love because he first loved us. Why do we imagine for a moment that, our, that we can manage our lives better than, than he could. How much do you trust God? Do you trust him to show you how to be a good steward in his management of his assets? The love of Christ now controls me. Any property I have, as well as my life itself, is seen as a divine stewardship. Let's move on to giving, because this follows the stewardship. So giving, it says the biblical steward is commanded to give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly under compulsion. And we're going to read 1 Corinthians 9, 7 a little bit later, but that's going to be one of the primary verses that we're going to be taking a look at. So tithe was an obligation commanded to the Israelites under the law. The tithe 
uh, A-Tithe has, has been seen as about 10%. There were other layers of giving, but the tithe portion that went to the, to the synagogue was basically 10%. Genesis 14:20. he gave him a tenth of all. We are not under the law, but under grace. There is no command in the New Testament that says the Christian must tithe. 1 Corinthians 16.2 On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save, which means give, to the fund, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. In other words, consistent and regular. Remember those when we get into how do you give. We can learn principles of stewardship from the Old Testament teachings, but the matter of giving for the believer in Christ in this present day of grace is not based on legal obligation. It comes from your heart. If a believer decides in his own heart out of the love for the Lord Jesus Christ that he will give of his earnings to the Lord, he is free to do so and will be blessed in it. That's a quote. But he must not do it as if giving were a, a legal obligation. And he must not do it with the idea that the other nine-tenths are his own to do with as he pleases without consulting the Lord. So what percentage? Some believers use the Old Testament 10% as a measuring stick, believing that this ought to be the least that should be given. It's up to you guys. It's up to you. As he has purpose in his heart, so 1 Corinthians 9-7, let each one do just as he has purpose in his heart, not grudgingly, that's key, or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. The decision as to how much is left up to the individual believer. That's a pretty big responsibility. How many of us try to set it up so that it's a routine, it's a habit? You turn it into a habit. That could be just as bad as not giving. We have no right to tell the believers that they ought to give. It is our obligation to instruct others in the word of God and its principles of, of stewardship. It is each one as he has purposed in his heart. If you go back to, the, to Luke 19.8, um, actually Luke 19, 5-10, can somebody look that up? Let's read through that just real quick. That's the story of Zacchaeus. Luke 19, Verses 5 through 10. Yes, please.
when you when you sit down and read that about Zacchaeus and his decision, what what is it that kind of pops out to you? What do you hear from Zacchaeus' mouth when he when he says tells Christ what he's going to do? Don't you see a bit of his heart? So, the rules for giving. Do not give begrudgingly or under compulsion. We covered that. Be a cheerful giver. We covered that. Still meet your primary obligations. 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So when we go through planning and budgeting, remember that. That's one of the key components that we take a look at. The true motive in giving is not to receive something in return. It is the love towards God. Obligatory giving, especially if one tries to lay the obligation on another, is a form of legalism. Random, careless, occasional giving is a form of antinomianism, which is graceful abound. That's two sides of the pendulum. Got to be in between. Not obligatory and not graceful abound. In other words, God will take care of it. I don't have to give. Now, one part of giving is under the category of what we call benevolence. And this is a rather long scripture, but I'm going to read through it because I think it's it's really important, um, you know, for this church and for society that we're in right now. Benevolence, Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for, for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware, lest there is a base thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of the remission is near, and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Seventh year, all debts forgiven. So the idea is that I don't want to give this to him because he'll never pay it back. So the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he might may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin to you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Remember that. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. Our giving to the church should only be the beginning of the giving, not the limit. Offerings are used to meet the needs of the poor. You minister to Christ when you give to the poor. Proverbs 21, 13, Proverbs 28, 27. It's all over the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament. Jeremiah 22, 16, 22, 16. So offerings are used to meet the needs of the poor. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten son. Because God loved, he gave. He gave. Love must be a motivator for our giving to those in need. Give as if to the Lord, otherwise it is only charity. If it's to the Lord, it is an act of worship. Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there, your, there will your heart be also. Giving is not God's way of raising money. It's God's way of raising people into the likeness of his son. It's for the, it's for the giver. He doesn't need your money. 1 Timothy 6, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Proverbs 11, 24 through 25, there is, there is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. Scatters giving, you increase. And there is one who withholds, that is justly due, but it results only in want. Withholds, the, the, Mr. Scrooge. The man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Uh, Psalms 37, 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. I've looked at this verse over and over and over again, and I'd say in most of the Psalms and Proverbs where it gives good, bad, bad, good, a contrast, because of the but, these two phrases are linked. So you have who borrows, does not pay, and then you have is, is gracious and gives. How are, how are they connected? Anybody have a clue? Why wouldn't it say, borrows does not pay, and borrows but pays? Anybody have a thought? Yeah. Yeah. When we get further along in this in two weeks, to be the righteous is gracious and gifts, to be in that position requires faithful stewardship. Not being in the position of having debt having to pay. Interesting. So Jim Elliot, he is not a fool. This is a quote from him. He is not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What we can keep after life is what we give away during our life. So in conclusion, dealing with the area of stewardship and giving, sometime read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Study those two chapters. That's the richest and most detailed model of Christian giving in the New Testament. That's where we get our instructions. Giving of self to the Lord 
it follows that everything one has belongs to God. We say you have given yourself to Jesus Christ. Do we show it by our actions? Your money is the acid test of that reality. So 2 Corinthians 8, 5, and this is not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They first gave themselves to Christ, and then they gave their funds to Paul. True wisdom with money begins by accepting God's ownership, and that wisdom provides the framework for other financial disciplines. Faithful stewardship provides good planning, spending, budgeting, investing, and managing God's money. Have you accepted God as, as the owner? Does God's ownership help you understand more clearly your stewardship responsibilities? It, it makes it more clear to me. It takes some of, the, some of the responsibility off of me in that I then can allow God to make, help me make decisions. Giving becomes a reflection of what God has done for us. We are the recipients of his grace and he creates in us a desire to be gracious also. Paul expressly said he was not commanding the believer to give. He suggested and encouraged them to give as a way to provide sincerity of their love. Let them show their love in reality. Paul describes giving voluntarily as being obedient. 2 Corinthians 9.13 Giving tests your genuineness of your faith. Some key quotes. I think I may have had them put into your outline. Are they there? Okay. Let's just read through them real quick. These are really interesting. These are theologians, um, pastors, um, authors of certain books that I picked up on. It says, so we aren't under the law of the tithe just as long as we don't use that as justification for giving less. Giving is the only antidote to materialism. Is that true? Is giving an antidote to materialism? Think about it. I think it's a, it's a really good start. Giving 10% is the place to start, not to play a place to stop. I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. When people say I cannot afford to give, ask them if, if your income was reduced by 10%, would you die? No, then you've admitted that you can afford to give. It's just that you don't want to. That's an interesting quote. There is more, more said about money directly and indirectly in Scripture than any other subject other than salvation. Some key stats which are very interesting, and these have been true for a long time. I think the one that's, that's interesting to me is, on the average, American Christians give 2 to 3% of their income. I don't know what that means, but it's just very interesting. So, how should we give? 
Proverbs 3, 9. It says, give of the first fruits. So what are the first fruits? I, I mean, I haven't found a definition of it. I, you know, come close. But what, what do you think first fruits are? Okay, so how does that apply today? You know, with your paycheck. Okay, it's the gross. I've heard that. So instead of the net. <laughs> okay. Um, what 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 what's first fruits? Just a sacrifice to first fruits, right? You've been waiting all year for that crop. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you haven't had apples in eight months, nine months, right? Yeah. Now the apples are ripe. Yep. And then what do you do with them? Do you eat one? Yeah. So, so you could say a raise, a, pay, a raise in your pay could mean first fruits. What else could it mean? Pardon me? Yeah, the best. Yeah, first. I like first. Giving the best, is this dollar any different than that dollar? Something to think of. It's the priority. In other words, when I think of the money yeah. God's given me personally, when I think about yeah. giving something back. Yep. Yep. I mean, this might be a little off, but when I was little, I used to, I remember I used to give dollar bills and I would take the shinier ones. The shinier ones. <laughs> That's a sweet thing that the Lord showed me. You know, yeah. yeah. We prefer gold coins. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's interesting. Go through the process to think about that and see where you line up. What's what's first to you? Okay, give proportionately. First Corinthians sixteen two, which we read before. Proportionately. What's what's that mean? As the Lord has prospered you. Yep. Anybody else? Okay. Okay. As you will see when we go through the budgeting process and looking at the five major categories of where our money goes, we prioritize and and determine which ones are which ones have to be paid? And in that prioritization, the proportionately gets thrown out the window because it's what's left over. And that's, that's, the, that's the dilemma, and that is the, how should I say it? It's, it's, the, it's what the world puts you into that you've got to get out of. And one of the key factors that puts you in that problem and position is debt. So proportionately basically means you have to decide in the beginning how much you're giving, not at the end. And that's, again, that's my thought process and you will see how that pans out and see how it fits in with your thought process on uh, proportionately. Okay, give sacrificially. So 2 Corinthians 8, 2, and 3. Um, can somebody look that up? Let's, let's read that. 
2 Corinthians 8, 2 and 3. Go ahead. There's three elements of giving, you know, in, in those two verses. The first element is according to their ability. Uh, giving proportionate, no fixed amount or percentage. And I think that's also a, a help with a definition of proportionate. It, that means it's not a, not a fixed amount or a percentage. Um, the second one is beyond their ability. Remember, they had great poverty. And the third one is that it was up on their, their own accord, voluntarily, not out of compulsion, manipulation, or intimidation. So, looking at that, those two verses and thinking about what Scripture also says about sacrificially, what do you have to do, or what does a person have to do to give sacrificially? What are the elements? Or what, what are the things that you can do to give sacrificially? Forfeiture is something valued. Okay. And there's a couple other things that go along with that, but anybody else have anything? You know, it, it's a change in lifestyle. So if you give, you want to give sacrificially, you may have to change your lifestyle, and and it could, and it's also probably a rearrangement of your priorities. Usually, priorities get in the way. It's what you've prioritized. So, and a forfeiture is something valued. So, it, I mean, it's not cleaning out the closet. That's not giving sacrificially. That's okay but it's not giving sacrificially. Okay, the fourth item as far as how should we give is give regularly. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. You know, the, the church prepares a budget and we graft out, you know, month after month, the giving cycle so we can prepare for the, the drops. And there is a giving cycle. And that tells you that, you know, people, people may be giving out of their first fruits. Something nice, big happened, and they want to give out of that. But the rest of it is that it's, it's not as regular as you would hope it would be. So one of, the, one of the things is regular. And the reason for regular is because the bills are there. They are regular. Giving needs to be regular. Giving cheerfully, Acts 20, 35, and 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it's all over. Give cheerfully, not begrudgingly. Give quietly, Matthew 6, 1. Let me read this quote. It says, there's great joy in giving, for we are not merely fulfilling a basic responsibility, but in truth, 
are opening our hearts to the goodness of God. It is in such giving that we become generous people. It is in such giving that we become grateful people. Indeed, it is in such giving that we become godly people. Are those elements in your giving? So, we covered those subjects. We just hit the tip of the iceberg. I, I hope it kind of gives you a, a, a flavor of where you stand. And it also will help you kind of open up and be willing to kind of take the next step, which is the next three categories, which is taking a look at the plan. What's your plan? Where's your money going? And the four-letter word, debt. We are also going to, in two weeks, cover... Does the Bible say that money is evil? going to answer some of these questions. Uh, we're going to look it up in Scripture and see what the Bible says about it. Is it possible to both follow God and make money? Is it right for Christians to have material possessions and enjoy them? Is it right to own certain possessions for personal enjoyment? And how much can we safely keep? And is saving ever wrong? And how can you convert your earthly treasures to heavenly treasures? So those are the categories that we're going to cover. Now, what you guys are going to do, I guess, next week, when you meet, you're going to go over a list of questions from today. The very first one, I kind of want to get a feel for what you think now. It says, what surprises you about what Scripture tells us about money and our possessions? So what, what's your thoughts about what you heard today? Pardon me? Okay. Somebody move here. It's just, honestly, it just makes me wonder afresh at how good God is that He spells this out for us. Uh, yeah. As I'm walking away today, just again, overwhelmed with God's goodness to give us instructions and statutes and precepts yep. extend all the way to how we steward. Yep. you? Okay. But I, I think one thing okay. that was also very compelling is over and over again, God says, this is all mine. You are just yours. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one of the yeah. key takeaways. 
Yep. And, and the stewardship part, I think, helps us manage that part. And so that's going to be the emphasis in two weeks, is, is to give some tools on management. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna answer some questions on debt. It, it's almost like s slavery. In fact, one thing I wanted to, to mention to you is, is that being a uh, having a master means you have a slave. Um, how many of you have read this book, MacArthur, Slave? You want a real, true, clear understanding of your stance with with God? Read this book. And the thing that I do want to point out about this. There's two chapters. He, he gives two chapters to one to one subject, which is towards the end of the book. And the, the chapters are from slaves to sons. Get it. Good. So, any other thoughts? Yes.
Yeah, the good analogy there is if you're a parent and you have children, do you want them to obey you grudgingly or do you want them to obey you cheerfully? Now, they're, they're obeying you either way, uh, but the desire is that their heart is with you. Yeah, I, it's... <coughs> Every person's different, and we all come from a different perspective to get to where God wants us to be. And if if the cheerfulness isn't there, does that mean you don't give? No. I think you still you work on that. You understand that that's that's a problem. I think where the cheerf lack of cheerfulness is, and, and I mean I was in this position. I saw I saw contributions I was giving to a church being used to purchase a whole bunch of equipment and all kinds of stuff that I thought was not necessary. But that was the wrong attitude for me, and I had to figure that out. It's not what the money is being used for, it's the fact that I'm giving to the church. So, any other comments, any other questions? So, yeah, try to be here in two weeks because it's going to be interesting. It's going to be uh, kind of fun. I mean, I, I like going through some of this stuff. Um, and the interesting thing about it is it's not something that you have to divulge, you know, your situation or what's going on and stuff like that, unless you want to. But you have a chance to kind of see different circumstances that different families and different individuals get themselves into. And then we talk about, okay, what do you do? How do you get out of this? You know, and you don't. There's no formula for, for, you know, any of it. It's all different depending on different people. But at least we're going to give you some ideas. To go from there. So Brian, would you close us in prayer? Yeah, yeah, let's pray. Lord, thank you for, especially for your word.